Welcome to All Saints Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit allsaintsokc.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at ASCCOKC. So let's look at Acts chapter 9. We're going to be looking at 1 to 9. And last week we looked at Philip, one of the Hellenistic or Greek Christians, and we saw him modeling early church evangelism with an Ethiopian official. And it was powerful to see the way that he shared Jesus and this man responded. It was a conversation centered around Isaiah 53, the scriptures, and the man was so moved by the power of the word of God, by the Holy Spirit, by Philip's words and instruction that he was baptized and thus began the mission to Africa. Powerful, powerful thing. Today, we are going to see Saul's radical conversion. And friends, I don't know about you, but this is one of those moments that I would kind of read through rather quickly because I was so familiar with it. Anyone else identify with that? I just kind of read through it. And this week, it just arrested me. It captivated me. And um, I'm going to try to make it through. Because I think that there is something in this for us as a church. Radical conversion of an absolutely hell-bent person. And so I think it's going to deposit some faith in us for the souls that we know. For the people that are least likely to come to Jesus. And it's going to lift and encourage our faith. So let's, let's read it. And could we stand? Let's read Acts 9, 1 and 9. And on occasion we stand just... As a symbol of respect for the Word of God, we get to read it. We have access to the scriptures where many people groups all over the world don't. So Acts 9, 1 to 9, and Lord, we ask that you would speak to us and cause our hearts to burn with a fire of truth. We love you, we love your Word, and we're grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts 9, 1 to 9. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along, approaching Damascus, suddenly, A light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days, he was without sight 
and neither ate nor drank. This is the word of God. You can take a seat and we're going to look at this rich passage. We're going to see three parts or movements in the passage dealing with Saul's radical conversion. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? Before we do that, I wanted to just sketch out just a little bit of the background of Saul or Paul. And Saul is his Aramaic, his Hebrew name, and Paul is his Greek name. And so we may use those interchangeably this morning, but I'm going to be focusing really on the way that Jesus addressed him, and that was through his Aramaic name, Saul. So I just wanted us to look a little bit about who he is so we can better appreciate this event that we read about in Acts 9. And the first is Saul was named after Israel's first king. And he was from the tribe of Benjamin. And there's some passages that give some biographical information on Paul or Saul. And one of them is Philippians 3. He was born about the same time as Jesus, around 4 or 5 BC. He was born in a city called Tarsus. And that city's over 6,000 years old. And it was an important city that was in Asia Minor. It's now Turkey. It was a Roman province. It was about 12 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. And he was also, Saul, Paul was a Roman citizen. Again, this is important stuff to help us better understand the richness of chapter 9 today and next week. Saul spent much of his early life in Jerusalem, and he was a student, he tells us, of a celebrated rabbi named Gamaliel. And like his father before him, he was a Pharisee, and we know this from Acts 23. And he said again in Philippians 3 that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was very proud and passionate about his Jewish heritage. We're going to see next week that after this moment, he narrowly escapes death in Damascus, and he spends three years in Arabia. It's Nabataean Arabia, and we'll talk about that more. It's a little area southeast of the Dead Sea, and he received his theology and his worldview directly from Jesus during his time. And Galatians 1 talks about that in the desert time. And he says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ appeared to him, which we're reading about right here, and that he was one untimely born. So Saul or Paul talks about the appearance of Jesus to Peter and James and the others, and then he says, I was born at the wrong time, and so I missed the window of getting to see him like the other apostles, but nonetheless, I saw him. And it wasn't just some kind of mental vision. Christ himself appeared to him. Listen to a little bit about certain characteristics, certain experiences of Paul. He says that he was physically unimpressive in 2 Corinthians 10 and in Galatians 4. He says that he bore in his body the scars of Christ in Galatians 6 from being beaten and stoned multiple times. He says in 2 Corinthians 12 that he was tormented 
by an evil spirit, but that God used the situation to keep him humble and dependent on God. Paul says that he was empowered by Jesus to do all the things that Jesus called him to do in Philippians 4. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 that he was about to finish his spiritual race that God had set before him, which went to include martyrdom in Rome. And we know that because of some of the early church fathers, Ignatius of Antioch and Tertullian, not long, a couple generations after Paul, that he actually died as a martyr for Jesus. Friends, second to Christ himself, Paul is the most influential person in human history. Let that sink in for a moment. Second to Jesus, and it's a far second, right? History revolves around the person of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, but Paul is the second most influential person in human history. He carried the gospel throughout the Gentile world and planted numerous churches on four missionary journeys in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and he wrote 13 books of the New Testament. So, this text here illustrates that God can transform a Christ-hater into a Christ-lover. That Jesus can take a persecutor and transform them into a preacher. The mercy of God can turn an apostate into an apostle. Friends, this story is stunning. It is outstanding, and there's nothing like it in the history of religion. And we want to, what I want to do here, I want to balance two things. On one hand, this is an utterly unique moment in salvation history and in the history of the church. There was one Saul, one moment like this, one conversion like him. But he makes it clear that his own story, his own radical conversion is an example for all time and all people of what the Lord Jesus can do in a person's life. Look at 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 16. Just want to read this so you can hear from him. 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 16. And listen to these grace and mercy soaked words that come from a former Christ hater, a church hater. First Timothy 1, 12 to 16. Paul says this, I am grateful to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful and appointed me to his service even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a man of violence. But I received mercy because I had acted, had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed from me 
with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But for that very reason, I received mercy. So that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience as an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. So friends, this is directly from his mouth. He's looking at his life, his demonic life, his dark life, and he's saying, I am an example of the mercy and grace of Jesus. So friends, as we look at this passage and look at these three movements in it, I wanna encourage you to think about a person that you know who's unsavable. Meditate on that. Oh, Lord, they are so far gone. And I want you to be encouraged by this text that the Lord can save anyone, anytime, anywhere. Can someone give me a Kleenex? You mind grabbing me a Kleenex? Thank you. She's got me one. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Thank you. I'm going to have lots. Thank you. So the first thing is found in verses 1 through 2. And we're looking at the reality that Saul, in verses 1 through 2, is persecuting Christians. He hates Christ followers. Really, at the core of it, he hates the church, he hates Christ, and he hates all of Christ's disciples. And look at verse 1. He is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He's a maniac. He's out of his mind, friends. And he's been referenced three times already up to this point, at the end of chapter 7 and then into chapter 8, verse 3. He's been talked about three times. And he was approving and probably facilitating the death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. You remember they laid their cloaks, the people that were stoning Stephen, and they laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. He was there. And then from there, chapter seven and eight tell us that he was seeking to destroy the church. And what does the verse here at 9-1 say? He is still breathing threats and murder. And Saul is like a beast. That's what the text is saying here. The the word that's actually used for breathing is snorting. And it's a word that's used in the Old Testament. In Psalm 80, verse 13, the text talks about a boar that's in a vineyard, thrashing it and ravaging it. And the same word is used here of Saul. He is a snorting, wild boar who's trying to thrash the Lord's vineyard. And so committed 
to destroying the early Jesus movement, he goes and actually gets letters. Verse one says, he gets letters from the high priest so that he can be authorized to go and track down and shackle and extradite Christians back to Jerusalem. It's what he's looking to do. And it's interesting to see here in verse two in the middle of it, look there, how are Christians referred to, what are they called? If he found any who belong to the way. And we don't know exactly where this name came from, but it was an early designation of Christians. And so they saw that to follow Jesus, to be baptized into Christ, to be in the church was an entire way of living. It was a way of life. And for them, these are mostly early Jewish Christians, they would have thought of Psalm 1. There's a way of following the Lord and living according to his word. And so they were known early on as followers of the way. And then we read in John 14, what does Jesus say that he himself is? He is the way and the truth and the life. So Saul knew that followers of Jesus were committed to Jesus who was the way and committed to walking on the path of discipleship with Christ. He's heading to Damascus, isn't he? Verses one and two tell us this, it's about a 150 mile journey, it took about a week, and he is planning to halt the spread of the fire of the movement there. So verses one and two give us a pretty clear picture of how rabid and crazy he was, right? Like Phineas in the Old Testament who would grab a spear and go and spear people out of zeal of the Lord. That's like Paul. Paul here is like a Phineas who thinks that he's doing Yahweh's work, but he is about to hit a brick wall and about to have his life transformed forever. Verses three through seven, we read it. Saul is going along, he's approaching Damascus. And at verse three, that word in the middle there, he's going along, he's approaching Damascus, and what's the word there? Suddenly. And we saw that word in chapter two. Do you remember at Pentecost? We talked about that. And it was suddenly from heaven that a noise, like a violent rushing wind, entered into the temple. And so Luke is using that same word to signal another suddenly moment here. Suddenly something else is about to happen from heaven that's going to fill Saul's life and change him forever. So it's suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. This is a what biblical commentators call a Christophany. We've encountered the word theophany before, which is an appearance of God. Well, this is a Christophany. This is an appearance, a manifestation of Christ in all of his resurrection glory. And again, Luke is very thoughtful here in the word selection that he's using. He's saying, recounting Saul's conversion that it was a flash It was a bright light that shone in the entire area where Saul and his traveling companions were. 
Now, this is one of those moments where you can say, I've heard this before. But friends, it was noon in the desert. Anybody been in a desert at noon? It is already really bright and really intense. And the light is reflecting off of the sand. It couldn't be brighter. And Paul's going to go on to recount this. He shares his story, his conversion story, three times. Shares it in nine. It's shared again in 22. And it's shared again in chapter 26. In chapter 26, he explains it further at verse 13. And he says, this light was brighter than the sun. His face was shining like it was the face of Christ at the transfiguration in Matthew 17. You remember Jesus took his three closest disciples with him up to the mountain and he was transfigured. They got a glimpse of who Christ really is, the king, and they hit the deck. Blazing light and glory from the face of Jesus. And friends, this makes such an impression on Saul, the Christ hater, the church hater, the persecutor, that he goes on to write about it. And it's like a thread that runs through his letters, his epistles. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, he writes to the church at Corinth and speaks of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. It's because of this moment here. He saw the glory of God in the face of Christ. He writes further in 2 Corinthians 4 that there is a light that blazes forth the glory of God and it shines into the darkness of the human heart and changes it and transforms it forever. Like God initially when he spoke and said, let there be light. Saul was experiencing a let there be light moment and it was the glory of God in the face of Jesus. I want us to look at, I put some images up here. I've got a, a variety of, of them. You can see, just let your eyes kind of settle there. You can see Saul at the center, the lower center of that image there, literally knocked off his horse. That's where the saying comes from. He's knocked off his horse and he's laying on his back and the glory of God in the face of Jesus has struck him and he's actually laying in a cruciform manner. This artist in 1610 was painting this to portray this glorious moment. Look at the next image here. Another, this one's from 1600 by a master painter named Caravaggio and the conversion of St. Paul. And there again, the glory, the light from the risen Jesus striking him and blinding him and he falls to the ground. And I wanted to include a couple other images that are non-Western. And this one is an icon in the, the Byzantine tradition here. And this is Christ in the upper right. You can see with the rays of glory hitting Saul while he's there and his traveling companions there with him. And then this last one I thought was beautiful in another way. This is a Coptic Egyptian Orthodox image portraying each of these kind of a cultural interpretation of what happened in this moment in their Christ engulfing 
Saul with his radiant glory. Friends, this is a beautiful moment, a life-changing moment for him. And how does he respond? He hits the ground. Look at verse 4. Like Daniel and some of the other Old Testament prophets, when they encountered the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God, the proper response is to fall to the dirt, to fall on the ground. You're overwhelmed by holiness and majesty and beauty and glory. And that's exactly what Saul does. There's no other response. He's encountering the one that he's been persecuting and he falls to the ground. And we see that over and over again in scripture. Can you think of other places besides Daniel where someone encounters God or maybe in the New Testament, someone encounters Christ, the end of the New Testament, the apostle John in Revelation 1 encounters the risen Jesus and has a similar response. And that response is fall down on the ground before the holy, holy, holy one. Look at the voice that comes to him. The middle of verse four there. He falls to the ground. He hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. He says it twice. Can you think of anywhere else in scripture where God is speaking to someone or Christ is speaking to someone and calls their name two times? Okay, someone mentioned Samuel, Simon, Moses in Exodus 3, the burning bush, Yahweh addresses him. There's a beautiful story too in Luke 10 where Jesus says, Martha, Martha, two times. So this is just shot through with meaning here. He's calling his name tenderly, Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And again, we have to enter into this narrative for a moment. It was absolutely devastating for Paul. He was overwhelmed. Here he is going, thinking he's doing the Lord's work. He's encountering something so glorious Brighter than the sun, he's knocked to the ground. There's a voice speaking to him. And the voice is, why are you persecuting me? Friends, his entire life is being reoriented in a matter of moments. Why would he say this at verse four? Why do you persecute me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my church? Why did you persecute Stephen? Why did you persecute other believers in Jerusalem and Judea? He says, me. And so this text is showing us, friends, that to attack Christ's followers is to attack Christ himself. And so probably for Paul, this was the birthing moment for his body of Christ theology that he writes about so beautifully in 1 Corinthians 12. This was it. Paul's theology began with an encounter, an experience with the resurrected Jesus. And then he went on to just write about it and unpack it. 
We read in other places in scripture, in Matthew 18 and Matthew 25, Jesus himself talks about kind acts done to others being like kind acts done to him. So this is a rich moment here. It's a tender moment where we get to see Jesus saying, I so identify with my people that to attack them or to do good to them is to do it unto me. Friends, this is rich. You, as a follower of Jesus, are united with him and he with you. He goes on to talk about it in John 17. He talks about in his prayer, you in me and I in you. Friends, it's born in a moment like this. Saul's understanding, he gets it, that he has been persecuting the promised Messiah that had annoyed him greatly and had fueled his anger and hatred. Look at how he responds at the beginning of verse five. He's stunned, he's disoriented, and he doesn't know who this is, so he says, who are you? And what's the word that he uses at the end of that phrase there? Who are you, Lord? Scholars debate this. Is he using it in a first century manner to say something like, sir? Who are you, sir? I don't think so. He's a careful Jew, and he is using that word because he realizes he has encountered someone divine. He's encountered the Lord himself, and it's beginning to dawn on it. This is the son of the living God. It is an agent of Jehovah. It is the promised Messiah in the very glory of God that's speaking to him. I I would say this is probably the most important question ever asked. Who are you, Lord? Who are you? Saul asked it. And I would encourage us to ask that every day. Who are you, Lord? You are so glorious and beautiful and amazing and full of mercy and kindness and grace. Who are you? I can't even begin to understand the fullness of who you are. So at All Saints, we want to ask that question, don't we? Regularly in our own times with the Lord, And when we gather in worship like this, we want to say, show us who you are. There is no one like you. You are the only person, the only object that never grows tired. I can exhaust all various things, but not you. The knowledge of you is infinite and eternal. And Saul begins to realize that at that moment. A reply comes to him, doesn't it? the end of verse five there. He says, I am Jesus, the one you were persecuting. I'm the one who appeared to Stephen as you were stoning him. And I am the one that you've been ravaging during this season. Now, as ridiculous as this sounds, I encountered this this week as I studied. I tried to read a range of viewpoints on this. And there are some modern interpreters of the New Testament who look at this and try to explain it away. And they say, you know what? Paul had a sunstroke. (laughs) 
he uh, may have had an epileptic seizure. He may have had a breakdown from a guilty conscience. And so, students, if you go to college, you may hear things like this from your enlightened professors. And let me just ask you, if it were a sunstroke, an epileptic seizure, guilt, does that make any sense to explain the trajectory of Saul's life? Does a sunstroke or any of those other things lead someone to do an about face, to live the rest of their life going in the opposite direction, absolute fiery devotion to the one you've been persecuting and eventually die because you won't renounce your faith? I think not. Friends, this was a real appearance of the resurrected Jesus to Saul, a Christ-hater. It was no psychological moment. It was a true radical conversion. Look at what he says after this, and this is what we're going to look at next week in greater detail. He says, now get up and enter the city at verse 6. And so Saul at this moment, he's already used the word Lord, but he knows at this moment he has a new master, doesn't he? He has a new king. And his life of devotion begins at that moment. And so we're going to be looking further next Sunday exactly at what Christ tells him to do. And he uses Ananias and others, Jesus does, to instruct Paul on what he's going to do. And we'll see that Saul, also known as Paul, after he regains his sight, Christ shows him how much he's going to suffer for his name. And then he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he's sent to carry the name of Jesus to the Gentile world after he's baptizing. Look here, we'll end with this, verse seven. The poor dudes that are traveling with him. It's interesting to note here too, let me just say this, this was a semi-public thing. You notice it didn't happen to Saul in a remote corner somewhere. There were witnesses to this event. You think that was important for Saul? A Hebrew of Hebrews? A Jew of Jews? He knew that there had to be at least two witnesses to verify the truth of something, the veracity of something. So he had traveling companions who were there to witness what was happening. Now, it was a selective revelation that happened to him, and we'll talk more about it, because you can take these three accounts and look at them, Revelation, I mean, uh, Acts 9, 22, and 26, and you can see that they're nuancing and emphasizing different things, but the point is, Christ appeared to him, not to his traveling companions. And he enters, at verses 8 through 9, he enters Damascus, and the Christ-hater and the church hater is now going to fellowship with Christ followers and to fellowship with Christ. And he, verses eight and nine tell us that he couldn't see and he didn't have his sight, 
And what was his response with food? What's the text say? He abstained from food. He was entering a fasting mode because he was so overwhelmed. And he knew as a good Jew, when you encounter God, the things of God, a proper response is to be so absorbed by that moment to say, I'm going to forego food. And so he's entering fasting and some early church fathers say it's interesting that it's three. It's three days. What could be suggested in that? Just as he denied the one who was in the tomb for three days, now he's entering blindness for three days and Christ is going to give him his sight back. So let's stand. Saul's radical conversion. This man, an unlikely candidate, is going to become a central figure in the book of Acts as we continue to look at it. He's going to become a lead servant of Christ in the rest of the book. And I want us to think, Luke 7, 47 says that the one who is forgiven much loves much. Jesus said that. And friends, Saul was forgiven much. He was a murderer, breathing out threats, hating Christ, hating the church, and the Lord saved him. The Lord appeared to him. And I just want to make space here. If there are any of you who are here at All Saints today and you don't know Jesus, now is a good time to meet Jesus. He can change your life. He can transform you. He can give you a new start. And he wants to demonstrate his mercy and patience in you and through you. And I'm going to be standing up here. If you want to come up, I would love to pray with you. This is a good day to give your life to Jesus and find a new master, a new Lord, just as Saul did. So Lord, we, we do, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this account, for Acts 9, to see Saul's radical conversion. And I pray that you would drive something deep into our hearts today, Lord, the, the person, the people that we think could never be saved that could never encounter your mercy and grace, I just ask that this would be a church where we have great faith. With man or woman, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. We say, Jesus, you are the Lord and you're the only one who can do something like this. We pray in your mighty name, Lord Jesus, amen. So next week, we're going to be looking at kind of a second part of Saul's conversion. Verses 10 and following is healing and infilling.